Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yow! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this right here, it's your KC One day at a time, the voice is going to make his triumphant return. Kitty, what are you doing here? Inexplicably, on a Thursday, Kitty's here in the studio. What up, girl? What's the word? Hello. So that is the one word? I've been sick this week, so yeah, pain. Pain is the word. Hey, no pain, no gain. Rise and grind, girl. You want to do this intro with me? Yeah? We taking back America, Kitty. We got your guy on the show. I think he might like you more than he likes me, TBH. Professor Harvey K., Professor Emeritus of the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Professor Harvey K., RBFF. Well, damn, that might be the title right there, Kitty. On the show today, we are digging into Eugene V. Debs, one of my all-time favorites, like... Legitimately one of my favorite humans in human history next to Kitty. Don't look at me like that. Don't look at me like that. Like what? You know what you're doing. Full show back in your feeds tomorrow. I got to go to Joplin though, so it's going to be uh, it might be a late one. I'm just going to be honest with you. I got to go to Joplin. What are you doing? No matter what, whenever you're in this studio, you got to find a way to be on that got phone. You see we cutting an intro. Why are you walking away? Come back. Kitty, come back. All right. That's all I got. A good day to be a Kansas Cityan. Kitty, say goodbye. Peace out, Girl Scout. We'll see ya in the morning. The high note. We're back, baby. Almost. High am Black. Beautiful. Beautiful. Professor Harvey K., my brother. He is the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I feel like that was a that was an extra special Harvey K. Because it's been so long, Professor Harvey K. How are you, my brother? You look exquisite. You look like you were well fed after the Thanksgiving break. How are you, sir? Speaking of food and love, I do have to tell you that I saw a movie this weekend, a romantic film titled "From Farm to Fork to Love." set in Kansas City. And it's a 2021 film, which I discovered after the fact is was a Hallmark movie, I guess. It was on, you know, Prime or Netflix is what, what where I saw it. And it was, my wife and I saw it. And it, it was just an adorable film if people want to take a, an escape, a break from the Supreme Court and Congress and all that stuff. I, I do recommend it. I mean, I do. Well, of course, it's adorable. It's set in adorable Kansas City. I think that was one of our nicknames long, long time ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Adorable Kansas. <laughs> I think that's the one across the river. I'm not so sure. Hey, you can't hear this right now, but the cars are booing you and right as we speak. No, no, no. I only say that because they're the smaller one, right? Mm-hmm. Usually think of adorable as smaller. That's all. Very true. The good folks from Kansas City, Kansas, across the river, they very much appreciate you calling them adorable. They don't get that a lot. Believe me, I can only tell you that my regret was they didn't have more time to get down to Truman's library and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I do recommend that film. I use romantic comedies as my escape because when you've worked in history and politics all day, you got to find an escape. And I, yeah, I don't always want to escape into a drink. I want to, <laughs> I just want to relax sometimes. At the risk of putting you on the spot, Harvey, what's your What's your favorite romantic movie? Well, okay, there are a whole bunch of them, but I have a special affection for a film with Kate Beckinsale and John Cusack titled Serendipity. 
Well, I can tell you that this is the season, if for any of you who are listening but haven't seen this, you should get Serendipity, and you and your partner should, should watch this. It's set in New York City. It begins in, was it Bloomingdale's or Bergdorf? It begins in one of the department stores where people will see, I'm not giving anything away, it's the opening of the film, where they both reach for a pair of gloves, and each one gets one glove. I don't want to give anything away on that. See serendipity. But you know what? Can I tell you a little funny story? So I always had a sort of a kind of little crush on Kate Beckinsale. Okay. She's got the coloring and the hair of my wife. So when I, when John, my friend John Cusack and I finally got together for, to talk, in the midst of our talking about politics and Bernie Sanders, this was 2000 and might have been 2017, something like that. I'm losing track of time. But I said to him, Look, can we take a break? I want to ask you a question. So what was it like to kiss Kate Beckinsale? <laughs> <laughs> Am I about to throw on serendipity tonight? I think I might be doing that, Harvey. You can't lose. I mean, you really can't lose. So what I'm gathering, Harvey, is not only are we taking back America, reclaiming our radical history, we're now dishing out film recommendations. I mean, this is a one-stop shop on your Casey Morning Show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to start booking up on films I liked. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? Seriously speaking, I've spent so much of the pandemic, and even now in the latter stages, I hope, of the pandemic, although this Omicron is really worrisome, I've taken to doing series, you know, TV series, other series on Netflix. What's our current one? This is one. It's an Italian one. Speaking of adorable, it's very adorable. Generation 65K. No, 56K. And what it does is it's these sort of young people, but it goes back and forth between their preteen years and their current sort of 30-something or late 20-something kind of years. It's a series of eight episodes. I think I finished episode seven before you and I started our conversation. Professor K, you want to go ahead and do this? We've started off on an adorable note, and you know what? This man here, I tell you what, he is as adorable as they come, yeah? Eugene V. Debs? I'm sure he was mistaken as an adorable human. Well, let's, let's start off with an adorable story. His parents were, his parents were from the Alsace which is a province of France that was lost to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War, ultimately regained, I guess, after World War I. But the thing about it is, is that his parents were French and they must have had progressive instincts. They named their sons after French novelists and they named Eugene Debs. Let's say it's Eugene V. Debs is Victor for Victor Hugo, the writer. I'm just thinking back the last 20 months, Harvey, you know, the pandemic started. And for me, I just, I had to find a way not to stew in the awfulness of it all. So I just, you know, made a lot of history homework assignments. And the first person I went to at the beginning of all this nonsense was Eugene V. Debs. And I'm curious if you can help me figure out why I was so gravitated to this man, because I think he's now maybe one of my favorite figures in American history. I will not jump to the predictable answer and say, well, 1918, the influenza, Spanish, as they call it, Spanish flu. It wasn't that, right? That Because he lived through that. It wasn't that. Perhaps it was because he would have to hold up. Well, this is another perhaps off the wall answer would be he spent time in jail and in prison. He was locked down, you might say. And were you looking to relate to his lockdown experience? No, it wasn't that. You know what, though? Something similar. This man, you were, and we're going to get to this in just a second, was yelling and screaming from prison between the pandemic and George Floyd and just the racial reckoning and everything. It just seems to me like this is our moment to draw those lines in the sand, right? This is right. This is wrong. And Eugene V. Debs, he was persecuted for that. I will tell you, for what it's worth, that he'd be a little upset to hear you refer to him as having been screaming. Now, let me make it clear. They didn't have the microphone systems that we have today. 
So it's true that he probably had to project his voice, which may on occasion sound like a scream, at least a good yell. How's that? But having said that, I do want you to know, and I was going to mention this along the way, that as a young man, teenager and a young man throughout his life, he truly admired a certain number of people because they were really great speakers. For example, he never would have been able to hear Patrick Henry, but he really did admire Patrick Henry, not only for his rebelliousness against the British, but also because he really did, I think he was inspired by Henry's oratory that he was able to read. He also was inspired by Susan B. Anthony, who we just dealt with last time in this radical Take Back America. He actually heard her speak. He may well have befriended her along the way, in fact. He was very good friends with a man who was something of a a progressive Republican in those days. But he was a very prominent figure, a lawyer from Illinois, who was one of the great champions of Thomas Paine's memory, as a matter of fact. Ingersoll, that's who it is, who was one of these folks that, you know, that our guy Debs just really admired. And Debs himself was, was a remarkable speaker. And we'll, t- we'll deal with words of his from two or three of his most significant speeches. But let me just mention, he was born and raised in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I want to note that Terre Haute, the fathers of Terre Haute, Indiana, believe that Terre Haute could be the leading city of the Midwest. Keep in mind that Chicago was still just growing and, and that they figured, why not Terre Haute? The rail lines were, could come through. It was nicely positioned. Terre Haute today is the home of Indiana State University and also the very high quality undergraduate polytechnic, we can call it, Rose Holman. It's like the MIT or Caltech of the Midwest, but at the undergraduate level. And Debs' home, Eugene Debs, the great socialist we're talking about, his home is actually still there, standing in the middle of the campus at Indiana State University. The irony is that there's a very tall, ugly building standing next to it, which I believe is the School of Business. (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) We went down there. We went down there after I finished my Thomas Paine book. I wanted to visit some of these places. Went there, went to Chicago, to the cemetery where Emma Goldman, the anarchist, is buried and the Haymarket martyrs were buried. So we get around those kinds of things. So let me come back to Dev's life. So he was born and raised in Terre Haute. He dropped out of, I believe he dropped out of high school and got a job working in the rail yard there. And some people say he was a sign painter. Others say he was a paint scraper. Probably did both. That's pretty much the only kind of work he ever did as a a railway employee. He left that, however, and became a billing clerk for, for some local company. But the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, the BLF, Debs, in 1875, signed up as a charter member, and he was elected the recording secretary, even though he himself was not really a railway worker. Well, this began a career in labor unionism for Debs. And this is really important because in time, he would be the leader, the president of the American Railway Union, Rail Workers Union. And this was a a union that really was eager, determined to secure certain kinds of, of wages. And I don't know if you want to call them benefits, but decent working conditions. And the union itself in the 18, early 1890s, when Debs had become the leader, should point out that in the Chicago area, there was a place where the Pullman cars were built. And it was the strike by the Pullman workers that led the ARU, the Railway Workers Union, basically to stage a sympathy strike with those Pullman workers. They refused, basically, to handle trains that had Pullman cars on them. It was a strike that we just won't handle those, those trains if they have those cars on them. At various times, they had won some kinds of actions and they had lost. 
But in this instance, anger was really, really heating up. Okay, this is 1893 and 1894. And the union workers themselves, they were eager to go out on strike. They, they were going to make their demands heard. And also in that sense, you know, support the Pullman workers. What happens is that Debs actually tries to cool them off. He's hesitant. They had already had two strikes, but he feared that this strike would really be devastating, that the chances of winning were going to be daunting. And yet he went along with his union brothers and they went out on strike, shutting down the railroads across the country. And next thing that happened, Grover Cleveland, the president of the United States, brought out the federal troops. And in the course of the strike, there were There were killings, there were deaths. I mean, it was an ugly situation. Debs and some others were arrested as a consequence of the strike and placed on trial and sentenced to six months in jail. Now, here's the thing about this. Up until this point, Eugene Debs is undeniably a labor unionist and also at the same time an American patriot. People wondered who his heroes were and he would say he had three heroes. This is Debs. One was Jesus Christ. The second was Patrick Henry and the third And most important, of course, is Thomas Paine. (laughs) Well, Debs goes into prison as an American patriot and radical, undeniably. He's going to spend six months. While he's in prison, Victor Berger, who is a socialist from Milwaukee, who becomes the socialist congressman from Wisconsin, he visits Debs in prison and gives him a copy of Karl Marx's capital. Presumably it was an edited, the most important sections, because otherwise it's like three volumes. I don't know if he gave him the three volumes. I, I, I have to confess, I don't know how much. I think he would have saved a lot of time if he just handed him the Communist Manifesto, the pamphlet. <laughs> but nevertheless, Debs had time. He's in prison. And he reads this. And when he emerges from prison, he comes out basically determined to help organize a socialist movement in the United States. Now, this is significant, and I'm going to say it's significant not only for the reasons I'll explain in a moment, but this. A lot of people take this moment where Debs has come out of prison and sort of announcing socialism is now his cause. They presume he is no longer a sort of patriotic American. Debs believed in the American promise. This was always at the heart of his thinking. What I want to show people that in Debs' mind, there was no contradiction between being patriotic and socialist. So Debs actually takes part in the formation of what is called the Social Democratic Party. Social democracy and socialism, are, for much of it, their history are interchangeable terms. It goes through another name change, and then it becomes the Socialist Party of the United States. And Deb is a founder and a leader of the party. In 1900, he ran for president as the candidate for the Social Democratic Party, and he won 88,000 votes. Believe me, insignificant. And he runs for president again in 1904. And this time, he gets 400,000 votes. That's not insignificant. Now, it's nowhere near the number you would need to win, but you can't ignore 400,000 votes at that point in American history. Well, the party continues to grow, in good part because there's a great newspaper that's published out of Gerard, Kansas, called The Appeal to Reason. becomes one of the biggest newspapers ever of its day. And it's a newspaper published by a guy named Julius Wayland, whose hero and champion was Thomas Paine, by the way. There's a through line here. That's the point. That's the point of my book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. It was never forgotten. It's a through line. Thank you. It's a good way of putting it. So Debs, Debs is now a socialist. And he runs again for president. The most significant moment is 1912. There are four candidates for president in 1912. One is the incumbent, Howard Taft, who's the Republican. The second candidate is Woodrow Wilson, 
the Democrat, who is viewed by many as a progressive, but he's not running on the progressive ticket. He's running as a Democrat. In fact, everybody tried to present themselves as a progressive in that 1912 campaign. The third candidate is the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, who has left the Republican Party because Taft stole the nomination, basically, from. And he runs on, it's called the Bull Moose Party or the Capital P Progressive Party. And he probably stole the nomination from Robert La Follette Sr., who was the senator from Wisconsin, who really was a Capital P Progressive. The fourth candidate is Eugene Debs. Now, Debs would not have called himself a progressive because he was a socialist. But it is the case, as some historians have said, is that all four were in that sort of progressive kind of framing. And in that campaign, which Woodrow Wilson won, Eugene Debs won 10% of the popular vote. The Socialist Party was on the move. And it's arguable that the Democrats and the progressives in their own way were already if you like hijacking some of the socialist platform regarding labor, et cetera, et cetera. But it's nowhere near a socialist platform that the Democrat or the progressive that Wilson or Teddy Roosevelt ran on. Debs is a tireless campaigner. It's really important for us to recognize that. But he had bouts of ill health. And when World War I broke out, the big question for socialist parties, for progressives and socialists, is do we support a U.S. entry into the war? And the general feeling was no. But in 1917, when Woodrow Wilson took us into the war against what was then called the Central Powers, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Turkey, I think, was part of that force. Progressives split. There were those who opposed the war and many others enthusiastically endorsed. In the United States, the socialists generally, they opposed the war. But Debs himself basically stood back. I believe his health was troubling him at the time. But in 1918, after the U.S. has been in the war for some months, he makes a trip to Ohio, Canton, Ohio, where he actually visits a prison there where some of his, some of his comrades are being held. And he gives a speech after he's come out of the prison. And as a consequence of this speech, he's going to be arrested and charged with sedition. Now, let me just explain it so people understand. Woodrow Wilson generally had a good reputation in the history school books because of the fact that he envisioned a League of Nations. He had announced 14 points, a whole idea for world peace, if you like. What we shouldn't forget, however, is that in the course of the war effort, Woodrow Wilson actually pursued authoritarian means to suppress opposition. And the Congress passed the Espionage Act that was later retitled and reconfigured a bit as the Sedition Act, which basically meant that you could not criticize the government and the war effort. It was a denial of free speech. And I also point out, because this to me is no less a sin, it is Woodrow Wilson who segregated the capital, Washington, D.C. People might imagine that Washington, D.C. was always segregated because it was basically in Maryland, which was a fairly segregated state, and even more so right across the river from Virginia. But actually, Washington, D.C. wasn't officially segregated until Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Well, hell, Harvey, it was Woodrow Wilson, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, who brought birth of a nation into the White House. That racist trash. Right. To, what do they call it? To screen. Thank you. To screen birth of a nation. Yeah. I have no particular love for Woodrow Wilson. The irony here, by the way, is that Woodrow Wilson, 
for the first time in many, many in generations, the Wilson administration grabs hold of the Thomas Paine and his words in, in, to try to recruit men into the army, to try to promote the war effort as a patriotic endeavor. And it's fascinating. And it, when I first encountered that, I thought, wow, this is great. But then when I saw what, what this was linked to, the kind of authoritarianism, Paine would have vomited at that thought. And I explained this in Thomas Paine, The Promise of America, is that a man like Debs was not about to let the Woodrow Wilson administration walk away with Thomas Paine. So Debs gives this speech after he's visited his comrades who are in prison, in which he lays out, you know, a socialist view of the war. Basically, it's working men who go off to fight and they end up fighting for an aristocratic class at home. So let's pick a few words. He says early in the speech, I have just returned from a visit over yonder, pointing to the prison workhouse, where three of our most loyal comrades are paying the penalty for their devotion to the cause of the working class. And they got a lot of applause for that. They have come to realize, as many of us have, that it is extremely dangerous to exercise the constitutional right of free speech in a country fighting to make democracy safe in the world. That's to use Wilson's own words. You know, we enter the war to make the world safe for democracy. When in home, he was making America anything but safe for democracy. I realize, Deb says, that in speaking to you this afternoon, there are certain limitations placed upon the right of free speech. I must be exceedingly careful, prudent as to what I say, and even more careful and prudent as to how I say it. The crowd broke into laughter. I may not be able to say all I think, laughter and applause, but I'm not going to say anything that I do not think applause. It's just to show you that he has a good sense of humor, Debs, in spite of the times that try men's souls, to quote my friend Thomas Paine. He goes on through the speech, garnering a lot of applause, good number of laughs. And then he says, why should a socialist be discouraged on the eve of the greatest triumph in all the history of the socialist movement? He believes that the outcome of the war, that what has been wrought in the course of the war, will lead to socialist victory at the polls, P-O-L-L-S. And the fact is that he was wrong. But he exuded this kind of hope and optimism. And then he's moving towards the stuff that is going to drive him to prison. He says, are we opposed to Prussian militarism? A lot of laughter, I guess, in the audience. Prussia was the most militarist of the German states that joined together to create Germany, Imperial Germany. Shouts from the crowd of, yes, yes. Then he goes on, why have we been fighting it since the day the socialist movement was born? A lot of applause. And we are going to continue to fight it day and night until it is wiped from the face of the earth. By referring to Prussian militarism, you can imagine that the Wilsonians were thinking this is an indirect way of attacking the militarism that Wilson had promoted as a consequence of entering the war. He then goes on to say, some paragraphs down. They tell us that we live in a great free republic, that our institutions are democratic, that we are free, a free and self-governing people. And by the way, it's recorded that there was laughter when he said that. This is too much, even for a joke, more laughter. But it is not a subject for levity. It is an exceedingly serious matter. And now he goes to the, if you like, the heart of the matter. He links together that, and I want to explain the word J-U-N-K-E-R is pronounced Junker. These were the Prussian aristocrats. To whom do the Wall Street Junkers, the Wall Street aristocrats in our country, marry their daughters? Because in Germany, it was known that the landed aristocrats were marrying their daughters off to the sons of the industrialists in the western part of Germany. And everyone knows this, and he's making use of this. And he says, these very folks... These are the gentry who are today wrapped up in the American flag, who shout their claim from the housetops that they are the only patriots and who have their magnifying glasses in hand, scanning the country for evidence of disloyalty, eager to apply the brand of treason to the men who dare to even whisper their opposition to aristocratic rule in the United States. 
No wonder that Samuel Johnson, the Englishman, declared that patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. I want to tell people, this is to jump ahead a little bit. When we get to FDR in the weeks ahead, there's a great speech by FDR in 1936. And I don't know if, if he was echoing Debs, but in this speech, he talks about the economic royalists who need to be overthrown in the United States. And that's not Debs saying it, that's Roosevelt saying it. But Debs continues in his speech. It's very serious in his speech. There's this line that I underlined in my own text. We may continue to grind the flesh and blood and bones of puny little children into profits for the aristocrats of Wall Street. And this in a country that boasts of fighting to make the world safe for democracy. The history of this country is being written in the blood of the childhood the industrial lords have murdered. How stupid and short-sighted the ruling class really is. Cupidity is stone blind. It has no vision. The greedy, profit-seeking exploiter cannot see beyond the end of his nose. Further along in the speech, Hartzell, why don't you pick up that one paragraph and here let me emphasize the fact. And here, let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fight all the battles, the working class who make the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely shed their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare war and they alone make peace. Yours not the reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on the part of the awakening workers of this nation. If we go towards the end of the speech, you'll see that Debs is well aware of the dangers involved of speaking what he is speaking. Hartzell, take it away. Do not worry over the charge of treason to your masters, but be concerned about the treason that involves yourselves. Applause. Be true to yourself, and you cannot be a traitor to any good cause on earth. Yes. In good time, we are going to sweep into power in this nation and throughout the world. We are going to destroy all enslaving and degrading capitalist institutions and recreate them as free and humanizing institutions. The world is daily changing before our eyes. The sun of capitalism is setting. The sun of socialism is rising. It is our duty to build the new nation and the free republic. We need industrial and social builders. We socialists are the builders of the beautiful world that is to be. We are all pledged to do our part. We are inviting a challenging you in the name of your own manhood and womanhood to join us and do your part in due time the hour will strike and this great cause triumphant the greatest in history will proclaim the emancipation of the working class and the brotherhood of all mankind thunderous and prolonged applause for those kinds of words debs was arrested and tried for sedition and sentenced to prison but before that, it's really important to realize that before the verdict is delivered, Debs himself addresses the jury. I want to talk about this speech because here's a speech in which here's this man accused of sedition, essentially sort of limited version of treason, really. And what he does is his belief in the American promise guides him or leads him to give a speech in which he reaches back, takes hold of American history. I'll get to that in a moment. He opens up and he says, this is his address to the jury. Gentlemen, I do not fear to face you in this hour of accusation, nor do I shrink from the consequences of my utterances or my acts. Standing before you, charged as I am with crime, I can yet look the court in the face. I can look you in the face. I can look the world in the face, for in my conscience, in my soul, there is festering no accusation of guilt. 
I wish to admit the truth of all that has been testified to in this proceeding. I have no disposition to deny anything that is true. I would not, if I could, escape the results of an adverse verdict. He's granting that what he said, he said. But now when he turns to the jury, he starts to call into the room. This is what I really wanted Bernie Sanders to do when he was debating Hillary Clinton back in 2015 and 16, the whole crew of Democrats this time around. I wanted him, the democratic socialist he is, the man he is who admired Deb so much. I wanted him to do something like this. But what I wanted him to do in particular was to bring FDR into the courtroom, I'm sorry, onto the debate stage and literally have FDR speak on behalf of democratic socialism or social democracy. More importantly, have FDR speak in favor of Medicare for all, right? Of, of the kinds of things FDR himself was demanding when he proposed an economic bill of rights. But Sanders didn't do that. He didn't do what his hero Eugene Debs did do. And this is what Debs does. Listen to this, okay? I admit being opposed to the present social system. I'm doing what little I can and have been for many years to bring about a change that shall do away with the rule of the great body of the people by a relatively small class and establish in this country an industrial and social democracy. When great changes occur in history, when great principles are involved, as a rule, the majority are wrong. He's not saying they're wrong in terms of their support of democracy. He's saying they're wrong in the sense that they get swept up in things by their leaders. In every age, there have been a few heroic souls who've been in advance of their time, who have been misunderstood, maligned, persecuted, sometimes put to death. Long after their martyrdom, monuments were erected to them in garlands woven from their graves. In other words, he's going to call forth figures from American history who at times were scorned and at other times celebrated as heroes and, are, and his mind are now considered heroes and he wants to align himself with that tradition. A century and a half ago, when the American colonists were still foreign subjects, when there were a few men who had faith in the common people and their destiny and believed that they could rule themselves without a king, in that day, to question the divine right of the king to rule was treason. If you will read Bancroft, this great 19th century historian, or any other American historian, you will find that a great majority of the colonists were loyal to the king and actually believed that he had a divine right to rule over them. But there were a few men in that day who said, we don't need a king. We can govern ourselves. And they began an agitation that has immortalized them in history. And now he says, Washington, Jefferson, Franklin, and his hero, Payne, and their compeers, their compatriots and peers, were the rebels of their day when they began to chafe under the rule of a foreign king and to sow the seed of resistance among the colonists. They were opposed by the people and denounced by the press. By the way, that's not quite the case. I want to just note here. But that's what people were taught. But they had the moral courage to be true to their convictions, to stand direct and defy all the forces of reaction and detraction. And that is why their names shine in history and why the great respectable majority of their day sleep in forgotten graves. Then he goes on and he says, it was my good fortune to personally know Wendell Phillips, who was a major 19th century radical. I heard the story of his cruel and cowardly persecution from his own eloquent lips just a little while before they were silenced in death. And now he goes on. William Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Garrett Smith, Thaddeus Stevens, and other leaders of the abolitionist movement who were regarded as public enemies were true to their faith and stood their ground. They are all in history. You are now teaching your children to revere their memories while all of their detractors 
are in oblivion. He later goes on in this speech, and he actually calls into the room as well Abraham Lincoln, because Lincoln had opposed the Mexican War. He dissented, and then, of course, became the champion of the Union and the abolition of slavery, the emancipation of slaves. So Debs goes on and says, the revolutionary fathers who had been oppressed under King's rule understood that free speech, a free press, and the right of free assemblage by the people were fundamental principles in democratic government. He's referring to the four freedoms of the First Amendment. He actually reads the very First Amendment of the Constitution, reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So he's now going to turn to this, to this kind of language where he says, I have told you that I am no lawyer, but it seems to me that I know enough to know that if Congress enacts any law that conflicts with this provision in the Constitution, that law is void. If the espionage law finally stands, then the Constitution of the United States is dead. And he then says, I cannot take back a word I have said. I cannot repudiate a sentence I have uttered. I stand before you guilty of having made this speech. I do not know, I cannot tell what your verdict may be, nor does it matter much so far as I am concerned. Well, the jury found him guilty. So his next task is his statement to the court. Now, please notice that this first address to the jury is a filled with patriotic figures, filled with heroes of American history that encourages him and inspires him to speak as he speaks. He's now been convicted, jail will await, prison will await. And he's going to make a statement to the court before the sentencing itself. These words are the words in which we really do hear the socialist speaking. And Hartzell, I'll leave it to you to read the opening lines of, of this speech. Your Honor, years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living beings, and I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then, as I say now, that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. I listened to all that was said in this court in support and justification of this prosecution, but my mind remains unchanged. I look upon the espionage law as a despotic enactment in flagrant conflict with democratic principles and with the spirit of free institutions. Your Honor, I have stated in this court that I am opposed to the social system in which we live, that I believe in a fundamental change, but if possible, by peaceable and orderly means. Okay, so that's the socialist, a socialist and a small d Democrat. The point that I want to get across to people here is that this is a man who truly does believe in the American promise and believes that the capitalist order of his day necessarily entails the denial of that promise. And when the war came, he was all the more, if you like, anxious, nervous, and hostile, antagonistic towards what, he, towards what he saw, not only because he opposed entrance into the war, but also because he opposed the Wilson administration's decision to take the authoritarian route by way of the espionage and sedition law, and which they then used to prosecute him for sedition. And when he defends himself, he is the socialist on trial. But this is the socialist who is deeply imbued with a sense of what America is about, what it must be in terms of world history. And he calls into the room these truly remarkable figures. And one of the reasons, obviously, that I fell in love with those words of his is because he knew that's what it means to take hold of our history in a really sort of 
intimate kind of way. That is, not only did he know the history, but he was bringing the history to bear because he knew that even if they were going to find him guilty, he knew that he was going to make those members of the jury feel uncomfortable in doing so. One of the things I, I always think back, MLK has the same the same way of rhetoric. In fact, he quotes Eugene Debs, and it is that importance of the history of the moment. We didn't say this part in the statement to the jury, but even today, as Roe v. Wade is on the chopping block, they literally held oral arguments today. I see this part at the end of his statement to the court. He says, I am the smallest part of this trial. I have lived long enough to realize my own personal insignificance in relation to a great issue that involves the welfare of the whole people. What you may choose to do to me will be of small consequence after all. I am not on trial. There is an infinitely greater issue that is being tried today in this court, though you may not be conscious of it. American institutions are on trial here before a court of American citizens. The future will render the final verdict. He's ahead of his time on so many different issues, Harvey. And the remarkable thing is when he's in prison, he runs for president of the United States in 1920 and he won one million votes. Not bad, not bad. But being in prison at his, at his age, he was born in 1855, was very debilitating. When he was released from prison, Christmas Day, 1921, President Warren G. Harding, a Republican, freed Debs and 23 other prisoners of conscience. Debs could never really become the man he had been before. He passed away in 1926. Socialism was on the rise through the 1900 to right up until World War I. World War I was seriously damaging to socialism as a movement. And in the 20s, after the Russian Revolution, socialist politics splits, schism occurs between those who identify with communism and those who remain socialists. It's in the 30s, neither the socialists nor the communists really ever, ever gain the strength that the socialists once had. As I mentioned to you once upon a time, more than once upon a time, I think a few times, <laughs> communists only numbered ever a maximum of, even in the 1930s, of 100,000. Socialist Party was larger than that, but had become essentially marginal because FDR had begun to pursue the kind of labor and social democratic initiatives that the socialists themselves had called for. In fact, the socialists probably, you know, over drinks said, the man's hijacked our whole platform. What are we going to do now? So social democracy, which FDR as a term never used, really does begin in this country on a national scale with the Roosevelt administration. But we'll be getting to that. If people have a chance to look at Deb's speeches, they're really quite good. And there was in the Socialist Party two kinds of Two kinds of politics. There was the Victor Berger politics. I mentioned Victor Berger earlier as the man who turned, it's often said, converted Debs to socialism. Victor Berger was the sort of Midwestern, upper Midwestern socialist who placed the lives of working people first and foremost on the socialist agenda and got elected. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was governed by socialist mayors for most of the 20th century. There's a documentary, if anyone gets a chance to find it, produced by Wisconsin Public Television, really good documentary, America's Socialist Experiment about Milwaukee and the kinds of things the socialists accomplished in Milwaukee. But it was also the case that socialists were on city councils and in-state governments around the Midwest and Upper Midwest for quite some time. People think socialism is an Eastern or Western kind of thing, because that's where all the 21st century progressives seem to be loudest. But it's the case that, it, that socialism was really strong in the Midwest. As I said before, Appeal to Reason, the newspaper was published in Kansas. The populists in the 1890s would have vast gatherings out on the plains. It's almost like religious you know, revival sessions. Well, 
Well, when the populace started to fade, the socialists in the Midwest did the same thing. Imagine going to a giant, you know, festival fair-like occasion with socialists out on the prairie. I can't, Harvey. In 2021, I can't. Right. I mean, seriously, Wisconsin, you know, had a, had a significant socialist politics, especially in Milwaukee, but all along the lakeshore of Lake Michigan. The great poet, I think I may have mentioned this before, but well, I hope we'll get. Oh, there's something we'll definitely have to get to the poets. Don't let's not forget that Absolutely. in 2022. Carl Sandburg, one of America's greatest ever poets, was a socialist organizer in Northeast Wisconsin. Then he became the secretary to the socialist mayor of Milwaukee. And then he moved down to Chicago, where he became the great poet of Chicago and remained pretty much his politics, always remained on the left. So, you know, and we shouldn't forget that socialist tradition. And Bernie Sanders, you know, in many ways was the revival of that kind of tradition. And that's why we're doing this, Harvey. That's why we are reclaiming our radical history. We are taking back America. If you can't tell, Eugene Debs is a hero of both mine and Professor K. And I think in this moment where we have to stand for the things that are right, Eugene Debs took that literally to prison. He put his life on the line over and over again in that respect. Absolutely. Professor Harvey K., Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. My brother, what we got next week? Well, first of all, let me just tell people that if they're interested in these kinds of things, I really would urge them Go to the library, ask for a copy of Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. It was a book I wrote that really does not only look at Thomas Paine biographically, historically, but it looks at the traditions that run through American history, the radical traditions, all of them inspired by Paine, as was Eugene Debs and the socialists of the first half of the 20th century. Where do we go next? Well, maybe on Monday, we ought to go back and connect some dots. We began this because we wanted to show Hawley that he couldn't get away with hijacking American history. You're a senator from Missouri. Well, a book came out recently titled The War on Small Business, which sounds like something that at least some kind of liberal Democrat, progressive Democrat, not necessarily a radical would write. Turns out this is a book by a conservative. And this woman, the author, Carol Roth, had a piece in Newsweek drawn from her book, which caught my eye. And she too was trying to hijack the American story, the radical story of America for the conservative politics, the reactionary politics that now dominates the Republican Party and literally is threatening to return with great force in 2022. So that's, I think we can go there next. Does that sound good to you? That's a hell of a tease, my friend. One last thing, the Packers... We are nine and three. We have our bye week this coming weekend. You are playing who? We got the Broncos this week, Professor K, as we call them here in Kansas City, the donkeys. That's what we've got this week. You're going to be texting me back and forth? Well, maybe. You know why you got flexed? Because people think, whoa, Mahomes may be back. The Chiefs are back. Professor Harvey K, my brother. Man, we can't be gone this long. We just miss each other too much. We'll talk for hours and, and hours. Yeah, people don't realize how many hours goes into producing 45 minutes. <laughs> we've been on this thing for about four hours, y'all. I love this man. As you can tell, we get going don't we don't forget everybody friday night date night check out the movie from farm to fork to love a kansas city story and with that professor k i'll see you next week my brother you bet bye-bye going straight to one place right to kansas city the kc morning show you're listening to the kc morning show